Hello, I'm Yolanda Brown, and this is LPO Offstage, the podcast where we chat about classical music and so much more. Today, I'm joined by the LPO's principal choranglais player, Sue Burling, and double bass player, Hugh Kluger. And I want to find out more about what their lives entail as musicians in an orchestra. Welcome, Sue and Hugh. Hi, Yolanda. Hi, Yolanda. Hi, Sue. Hi, Hugh. So to kick off, I think I'll start with one of uh, my favourite feature questions. And it is, what is your must-have item on tour, which is not related to your musical instrument? So what is something that you really need to make sure you've got packed with you when you head out on tour? Uh, Sue? That's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> start, start with the hard question. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's so boring, but I'm going to say my iPhone. If I didn't have an iPhone... Then I wouldn't have books. I wouldn't have music. I wouldn't have contact with the outside world. I hate to say it, but I love no. paper books. I still love paper books. So I'll always have a really good book with me. But my phone has got, I subscribe to quite a few apps. So I've got a thousand magazines at my disposal. I've got a million different types of music to listen to. I love jazz. So I think, to be honest, it's a horrible thing, but I think really I'd, I'd be hard pushed to survive without my phone. Oh, brilliant. Hugh, how about for you? I think I always travel with a tote bag with me so I can buy random things when I'm walking around and I don't know what I'm going to get in a in a new city, like silly stickers <laughs> and... um novelty beer glasses, things like that. So I'm always ready to buy brick Secret and brush shopper. to take home with me. <laughs> yeah, 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 mystery shopper. <laughs> you never knew. <laughs> and, and what's one of the favourite things that you have found that you've put into your tote bag? We went to Miniature Wonderland in Hamburg on our last tour and uh, I bought some really tasteless things from the gift store like stickers what else did I buy? I bought a tote bag. I bought a Miniature Wonderland tote bag. You'll see that on the next tour. <laughs> I'm worried oh, now, Hugh. I'm worried. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least I'll have a spare We for didn't you, even so. go into the actual place. We just went to the gift shop. <laughs> and do you find then you keep everything at home? Do you have lots of bits and bobs at home? I might have sounded like I'm a huge shopper, but I just see something here and there, little things, a sticker, and I, I keep it just to remember the places we've been because we sometimes spend far less than 24 hours in one city and never go back. Yes. So they're just little reminders. That is really, really lovely. Well, that leads me quite nicely into a question from Hannah that's come in from social media. And Hannah has said, what is your favourite venue to play in and why? Hugh, while you think about where you got the best sticker from, maybe that might (laughs) might influence your answer. Sue, what's been your favourite venue to play in and why? Wow. I I think... One place that I've really loved playing, and it came as a huge surprise, is the concert hall in Murcia in Spain. And Japan has got some of the finest concert halls. So I think this um, concert hall in Murcia might have been modelled on a, a hall in Japan. The Japanese have got some fantastic places. I was touring actually with not our orchestra, but with the English Chamber Orchestra. And we were just in a small little minivan. It was a very small orchestra. And we reversed him to what looked like the loading bay of a small supermarket and I thought cry what I'm sure sure the driver's got this wrong and then we were put in a lift and we came out of the lift doors and these double doors opened and there was this incredible concert hall just built in this like a big sort of multi-story shop sort of shopping mall type thing and um, the doors opened and it was just beautiful and this hall I think it was in Toyota City and 
the one in Merthia, they have um, untreated wood. They keep the wood really natural. They don't coat it. They don't varnish it. And so the acoustic is, it's just fantastic. And I cannot describe the best feeling in the world when you've got to play and you just know it's a realistic representation of actually what you're doing and you can hear what you're doing and you can hear your colleagues so for me that hall in Murthy was a huge surprise but actually most of the halls in Japan I just they're, they're phenomenal phenomenal Oh, I love how you describe that and hearing your instrument as you've as we as you've it. played it and as as you hear it. Oh my goodness! <laughs> don't underestimate <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how horrible it is when it's not uh, as it should be. Mm. So that is brilliant. Thank you, Sue. Hugh, your favourite place to play and why? I totally agree with you, Sue. I think uh, Japan has some of the greatest halls that I've ever played in acoustically. But for me, that's often very scary being able to hear myself perfectly. And uh, so I'd actually vote for, uh, like you, a Spanish hall in Valencia. It looked beautiful. And I mean, my association with it is not only the sound in there, the architecture of it was, I thought, quite amazing. And also you can get amazing food all around it before and after the gig, which is one of the most important things on tour that you can get a great pier right on the beach Mm. and then walk down to the hall. And so I've got great memories of playing there because there are so many halls that are acoustically good, but also, as I say, it didn't make me feel like I could hear myself so well that I was playing on my own, which I've I've actually had that experience in, I remember Suntory Hall when I first went there, everyone said, this will be the best experience you'll ever have. And um, yeah, I almost felt like I was playing on my own and I could hear every little creak and squeak and I didn't enjoy it so much. Story of That's my life. really interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Well, those are really great answers. And I kind of, you know, getting to know the family a bit more now. uh, I did think it either had something to do with sound or food. And you had both in your answers. (laughs) As it worth mentioning here, just behind the um, that Valencia Hall is an absolutely world famous garlic bar. And after a concert, Ooh, you'll see this, the whole orchestra around this tiny little place. This is, you know, like a two-door wide establishment with just a cauldron of squid and fantastic Spanish tapas and what have you. And yeah, that, that oh makes a big gosh. difference, isn't it, after a concert? Uh, it's, there's nothing worse when you're on tour and you can't get a meal afterwards or a cold beer. I mean, that's, that's a nail in the coffin <laughs> for me for a venue. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Listen, you're answering all my questions all all in one here because I was going to lead to food. Do you cook at at home first and foremost? Sue, do you cook? Yeah. Hugh, do you cook? Definitely. Yeah, I love to. Good. Well, the fact that you love to cook means you you know the essence of the food. You know what you're looking for. So what do you like to eat when you're on tour? And obviously we know when a concert is finishing, it's late. So what do you like to eat? But what do you usually get to eat? Sue? It's tough on tour, isn't it, Hugh, sometimes? As we've just described, sometimes we can be in venues and there's nothing. Most of the cities in Europe, I think we've got to know very well. And there'll be a few restaurants that we know and we have the details and we will actually ring ahead and ask them to stay open late. If we know it's a Sunday or an unpopular night and we've just done a concert, we will actually phone ahead and say, hey, look, there's 10 of us. Will you stay open a bit later? And they know, and they're really happy to do it, and they, they love to see us again, and this makes it all worthwhile. Where We're travelling out. Say it might be just we travel on the day for a concert in Madrid very often and fly home the next day. It's tiring, and just to know that there's this lovely restaurant where actually we can all just wind down. 
yeah. actually talk to each other without thinking about the concert and the music that's coming. You know, it's all over. We're going home again and just have a fantastic meal. It makes all the difference. It really does. I think, Hugh, we can safely say we're foodies, aren't we, really? Oh, undoubtedly, yeah. <laughs> so whether it's cooking at home or eating out, it's really important. It's food for the soul. And Hugh, I don't know about you, and I don't know how it is for you, Sue, but, you know, myself being a wind instrument player, I don't really get to eat before performing. If you want to find your lungs halfway through the set, you, you can't really eat. So what, what kind of dish would you be craving after the concert, Hugh? Mm. It de- yeah, I mean, <laughs> already as a double bass player, I... <laughs> I can't say that I, I, I challenge myself to not eat before a concert or anything like that. I mean, I can have a, a schnitzel before oh, a concert on. and then a Schweinhaxer after. This it doesn't, is not fair. It doesn't really affect <laughs> me. It's kind of a, a lot of the time it's like we're woodchoppers when we go into a, a concert. And um, it honestly just depends where I am in the world. I mean, my favourite one is experience that I've had is in Munich when we were playing at the Gasteig and there's this little pub that we'd go to the bass players that is and mostly the French horn players as well every time after the gig and there'd be these older ladies who were in the um, dirndls and they would be so rude to us I'm sure they know who that we were because we went there so often they would really be super rude and dismissive. And you walk in there and they'd say, what do you want? We say, can we get some beer? And they say, oh, okay, fine. Sit down. So they sit down and say, do you have any food? They go, oh, okay, yeah. But, you know, like we're closing the kitchen. Say, okay, well, can we have whatever you have? Go, oh, fine. We'll just get you what we have. It was this competition to kind of get us to leave. And we really enjoyed staying there as long as we could and eating all the pork that we could. Um, (laughs) The biggest, heaviest, greasiest meal possible after a concert for us. <laughs> that is what I usually right. find. We are living oh, in two different goodness. worlds, aren't we? I think strings and wind. It's just you know, <laughs> there's no way in a million years I could pack away a schnitzel and chips oh. before a concert. You know, so very often Not we're going all. on with stomachs rumbling. I just there's no way I could blow on a full stomach. It no. would just and I'd fall asleep in the bar's rest as well. It would be a complete disaster for me. <laughs> What what do you tend to eat? Um, it's quite tough, isn't it? I, I tend to, the older I've got, the bit more, more organised I've got, and I'll have emergency snacks, and there'll be something like one of the, sort of the Korean sort of noodle type thing, you know, which is basically just miso soup and a bit of noodle, just something that's yeah. sort of hot. And it goes wrong horribly sometimes, you know, where we really do go on and we haven't had time to eat or, you know, planes are delayed and you go straight to the venue. It can be really tricky. We've had some fantastic agents in the past. Fred from Schmidt on German tours. If we'd had a bad travel day, things had not gone to plan. And he he was fabulous. He'd just go out and we'd come out after the break in the rehearsal. We literally had 30 minutes before the concert and there'd be a pile of pizzas that he would have bought oh. in for us. Those are the days. It's not quite like that now, but those like days, yeah, he, yeah, he was just fabulous. He, he just knew, time. you know, he put little sticky signs up knowing that we were all a bit jet lagged or just too much traveling. And there'd be a little pink sign literally outside in the street saying this way, smiley face, oh. you know. So we were really looked after. He was, he was a gem, absolute gem. Oh. But food, oh, it's important. It is so important. And I mean, that is the interesting thing. People hear about the different places you get to play, the concert venues, the countries. But actually, it's not it's not that glamorous, is it? The, the tour life. Not in reality. <laughs> it's not nice always. when you get to sort of have a little bit of a mooch around the town if you get the time. But yeah, it really is quite tricky. But it did it occur is. to me the other day... Um, all the travel that we've done. I mean, I've seen places in Britain and Europe and around the world that I would never have seen had it not been for yeah. doing what we do. It is amazing. But yes, it's it's not always glamorous. 
<laughs> the, other, the other day, did you go to Lubeck, no. Sue? No, I wasn't involved. Oh, we went there and, um, you know, we got straight off the, the plane um, in Hamburg, I think, and then got the, straight on a bus to Lubeck and we arrived half an hour after the rehearsal was supposed to start. So we went straight into a rehearsal and then we had an hour between the rehearsal and the gig to find food. So I found a kebab across the road, which I barely managed to eat in time because half the orchestra was lined up to get one. <laughs> And then afterwards, we got a bus straight back to Hamburg. Oh. So if you hadn't had the kebab, there was no food between, you know, a 6 a.m. breakfast and and getting back to the hotel at midnight. Yep. That was touring. That's touring. That absolutely yep. is. Well, you're telling me some lovely stories here. And I've had a, a question in from Thomas. And just for the listeners that are listening in, if you hear some of these questions, you think, I would have wanted to ask that. And there might be some more questions that you want to ask. Please do email us offstage at lpo.org.uk with any questions for any of the players or guests that we have here on LPO Offstage. Of course, you can also send us a message on social media at London Philharmonic Orchestra. So Thomas has said, most embarrassing concert moment, for example, string snapped off, fell off stage, phone went off. (laughs) I think he's really looking for a doozy. Hugh, do you have an embarrassing concert story to share with us? To be honest, I've always found it quite funny when things have gone wrong. So embarrassing is maybe not the right word for me. But I mean, the other day I was walking onto a stage in Athens and someone stopped me to tell me that my trousers were completely ripped down the back, (laughs) at which point I said, oh, oh no, well... I mean, you know, I either play the gig or I don't. So I walked out there in front of, there were a few thousand people in the, at the, um, the base of the Acropolis outdoors. I'm like, well, you know, like there are some people who are going to be able to see this from the side, but what can you do? Oh my that was that. I wasn't embarrassed. I thought it was hilarious, actually. And I, I made sure to tell all my colleagues to check it out <laughs> as we were walking on stage. I need some of that. Because, I mean, for that not to distract you throughout the concert as well. And that's really, really good. Because I would be thinking. I made sure to stand up and um, show my colleagues. I took the option of turning the pages, even though I was on the wrong side, so I could stand up and show my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, I, I think they were distracted by it more, more well, so than I was. Begs the question, Hugh, how did it happen? <laughs> Years of um, wear and tear, actually. Oh, I mean, actually also worn we were probably <laughs> worn out. Yeah, we were probably doing something stupid backstage at some point, like trying to have a splits competition or, you know, the sort of things that get you prepared for a sensitive musical yeah, experience. Up somehow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And do you have a new pair of trousers now, Hugh? No, I got them stitched up. Oh, well, brilliant. We're They're crack. back on the road. <laughs> so it's only, it's only a matter of time. <laughs> and Sue, how about you? Anything embarrassing you can share with us? Oh, mine's a bit more serious. It's a bit more sorry about this. It's not a laugh. When things don't quite go to plan, my instrument was out of regulation and my repairer was abroad. And I just found myself, oh, this is the worst feeling in the world, actually. Things weren't going to work. I knew they weren't. And we had a concert and I just had to make the best of a bad job. And people around you are probably thinking, you know, I must have sounded like sort of grade three. But there was just this one note that was just not going to happen. It didn't matter what I did. It was just a little bit prominent. And I just thought, well, I just got to bite the bullet. I can can either rewrite this thing and try and avoid this note. And then everyone's going to stare at me even more and the conductor's going to go ape. It's just when, when things aren't quite functioning right, it's just the worst feeling in the world. And I don't know if it's embarrassment or just, yeah, I think it probably is really. There's nothing you can do. It's out of your control. So what did you do? um, I just grinned and bared it and it kind of happened, sort of, but it wasn't really where it should have been. And 
And at that point, you're just thinking, how many years have I been doing this? And I just literally, I, for me anyway, it was like I was sounding like I was just got grade three. And, oh, um, you know, it's just one of those. I just knew there's nothing I could do. I couldn't see my repairer. He wasn't around. It was a bit too technical for me to sort out. You know, we have lots of pads on our instruments, the unbelievably complex mechanisms and all the wind players. We always say it's amazing these things don't happen more often. But it was just yeah. one of those, we just had to sit there knowing, you know, like Hugh's saying, sitting on the platform and never really feeling like you're on your own because obviously you're one of a team, but we're always on our own and that, there's no cover and I couldn't, if times like that, you just think, can I just give this bit to another instrument? Can they just cover me on this? You know, but it's, there's never time for all that. So that's, yeah, oh. that's a combination of feeling terrible and embarrassed and just, oh, let get me out of here, basically. Oh, That's the honest truth. You. Well, well done for <laughs> carrying on and soldiering on. Well, it's an interesting, I'll share it, uh, a similar embarrassing story, I guess, in a way. I remember prepping a whole box of reeds to go and play in the Caribbean and in America. Uh, I was going to be on tour for about four weeks, so I knew I needed a box ready to go. And got to Jamaica for the first concert and all of the reeds had warped. Ooh. So, you know, <laughs> you think that it's going to play. I know I've prepared myself and all of these are ready to go. And they had all warped because of humidity. And you can't do anything. There's there's nothing you can do. But actually, I was I was inspired by going to a school a couple of days later. Of course, I had to play the gig and yeah, equally feeling, oh goodness, this is really hard. <laughs> Sue's got her hands on her head, I know. <laughs> but actually, I went to a school to do a workshop and they all had these these instruments that literally were being held together with sellotape and rubber bands and, you know, reeds that were all broken. But yeah, they were making such a glorious sound that really you realise. If you're going to do it, you just got to do just it. Gotta do it. <laughs> if you're born to do it, you'll do it. I'm going to go back to a uh, listener question. As I say, lots of them have come through. Sophie has asked a question. Do you listen to music outside of classical? Sue, you kind of led us at the beginning there talking about jazz. But Hugh, do you listen to other things outside of classical music? Do you even listen to classical music? Yeah, I listen to a lot of classical music. The stuff that I love, I love listening to Strauss and Wagner and Brahms, things like those, the schnitzels and schweinhuxes of um, classical music, the rich, heavy stuff. Outside of that, I love listening to jazz. I go to Ronnie Scott's relatively regularly with one of my LPO colleagues, Tom Wally. We've, I think we've been two or three times this month to see different things. We saw Bob Mincer and the Yellow Coats recently. Oh, and it was amazing. just one of the I – saw, I saw them in Birdland years ago, so I knew it was something I wanted to see again. And it was just one of the, the greatest gigs that I've ever seen. And, you know, I get introduced to different musicians through that. I Last time I saw Bob Mincer, they had this bass player, Felix Pastorius, who was the son of Jaco Pastorius, yeah. one of the, the, the most famous – electric bass players of all time. And um, his son, Felix, was just incredible. And so I follow him on Instagram and watch his videos all the time and find out who he's playing with and check out their stuff. But um, aside from that, I just, I love hard rock and um, metal, thrash. I'm kind of going through a, a, a thrash metal phase, revisiting bands like Pantera and some hardcore stuff uh, like Madball. And I love finding Aussie underground rock and metal and hardcore bands I if I can. Um, sometimes I go and see classical concerts and usually I'm underwhelmed. When it comes to orchestras, I often see people who look like they're clocking in and clocking out of work. I don't feel that way at the LPO, but there are many orchestras that I see and I see people that just look bored and disengaged really. And I 
when I go to a metal gig and there uh, there's a band screaming their hearts out, you know, like smashing their guitars and you know they're getting paid 50 quid to do it or nothing. And I think that's kind of what music's about. It's not necessarily about the genre, but it's about the the excitement, the power of it, the emotional connection that, that a performer has to the music themselves and that they make with the audience. And so I don't think that's... Um, defined by genre for me, actually, you know, I never grew up thinking that people who screamed into the microphone was my thing, but you know, like that's to me, if you kind of say that you can listen to expressionist Sprech Stimmer in a concert hall, but you can't listen to Pantera, I think it's insane. I think you're absolutely missing out on some of the, the greatest stuff being done. I love discovering new music. And it's not just listening, right? You play electric guitar as well. I do play it uh, theoretically, but in London I've I've always rented up until recently and I've never had space to have a guitar. And now that I've got a place where I could have a guitar, I don't know when I'd rehearse with friends and start a band. I'd love to start a, I don't know, a death metal band or something like that. I just... I don't have any time, unfortunately. Oh, I would be front but, and yeah. centre, you. I could feel the passion. I just, <laughs> I think I'd love to be your neighbour as well. And maybe the neighbours might not want to be your neighbours when you do start. <laughs> not my neighbours. <laughs> oh, thank you for sharing. And, and Sue, how about for you? What do you like to listen to outside of classical? Um, yeah, slightly different taste to Hugh, but I can go along with what you're saying. It just being present at a live performance, whatever genre. It's just such an organic process and it's magical for me. I just I just get tingly just if I'm going to a theatre performance or listening to people in the pit or whether it's classical. Aside from learning repertoire sometimes, but even at this ripe old age, there's still things I haven't played that crop up and I think, ah, OK, got to do a bit of homework on that. Generally, I'm, I'm listening to jazz and listening to you on Jazz FM, Yolanda. I mean, you know, hey. Oh, well, um, hello. Thank um, you. <laughs> but, you know, I think one of the highlights for me was being able to be part of the Joni Mitchell's album when she came to yes. London. And, I mean, it highlighted my career. Sorry, it might be going off on a different story. But Not at all. Um, that kind, those arrangements by Vince Mendoza, I just cannot get tired of listening to. They are absolutely phenomenal. That, so you've got a full-size symphony orchestra accompanying somebody like Joni Mitchell who, to be honest, we didn't know she was there. So we're recording this in the studio. She's singing live, and we didn't know she was there on that first album. It was absolutely mind-blowing. Wow, was that in Abbey Road or something like that? It was, yeah, Air Studios up in Hampstead. And then we got to hear that she was there and and managed to actually go and have a chat afterwards, what have you. Just phenomenal. I mean, just incredible. And just the sweep of that orchestral sound. So I think... For me, I'm better at sitting in the middle of it all and listening to it going on around me, you know, rather than actually put on a CD or something. I like to be there live, I think, whether I'm playing or listening. Yeah, nothing beats it. Well, I'm going to let Sophie take over the questioning, actually, because she put four down and she said, uh, Sue, do you like playing the Cor Anglais solo in Dvorak's New World Symphony or are you sick of it? (laughs) Um, I'm never sick of it and yet I'm probably getting into three figures now of playing that tune which is incredible and we went all over YouTube a short while ago and I'm very conscious that there will be people in the audience listening to this tune for the first time and that's what keeps me keeping it fresh I've got to remember there's somebody there that's never heard this before I do find it it, it's a tough one when you so many repeats I'm hopeless at repeats 
I'm absolute disaster if I have to do, you know, run at Glyndebourne. I'm fine for a few performances, and when it gets to performance <laughs> four or five, I, I, I hit a wall somewhere along the line. It's really hard to try and stay super positive. I don't know what it is. I just hit the wall. I've always been like this, and I try every year. I try and talk myself out of it, and I stop counting performances and what have you. But you know, on on my LPO piece of music, you know, there's a list of conductors and how many times and I've it's ticked oh, and crossed and how goodness. many times I've performed it but it is one of the most beautiful tunes uh, and also to you Hugh the question is what's your favorite thing about playing double bass there are a couple of things that I love about it one is the pure physicality of it it's it's often like a session at the gym where you can just take out everything you want on the instrument and try to rip it apart and I mean that's that's usually what we do in the LPO bass section. You try and absolutely rip the instrument in half and just take out whatever you want on the thing. Is that even um, on the ligature so the other night fun. at the prom? You t- just really? <laughs> it's Let all me think. <laughs> Maybe not that one. Maybe not the ligature. That was. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's more challenging for me, I've got to say. Ah, yes, of course. <laughs> that one is much more challenging. Not that one. Um, the other thing I love about the bass is it's the function, well, if we're just talking about it within the orchestra, the function that it plays to kind of, we're, we're the arbiters of tempo when the timpani isn't playing, we take complete control of that. And we're also the, the controllers of the harmony. I mean, if we choose to delay playing the next note, we've set the foundations of the orchestra with the tonic of the chord, the bass of the chord. I think we have a huge amount of control over how everyone else has to play. Um, it's, it's, I think it's a very, very um, functionally important role within the orchestra. You can kind of have lots of so many, so many pieces where there is no melody at a point, but the double basses are dictating what's going on. Even when there's a melody, they have to fit within what we do, depending on how you play, how much you rip the instrument apart and how much they have to listen to us. <laughs> But then, I mean, there are the sensitive moments, you know, when Sue's playing a solo, I definitely listen and uh, <laughs> That's good try and to fit know. in with what she's doing. I'll make it as difficult as I can next time for you. <laughs> I'll your waver barrel. on that bar line just a little bit longer than you expect. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try and get a question in Edgeways here. Honestly, so many <laughs> questions have come through on, on social media and over the email. Thank you to our LPO listeners for emailing in and keep them coming, please. But I would like to um, check in on what do you do when you're not playing music? What sort of hobbies do you have, Hugh? I love food and <laughs> most of my tourism is based on food. I would never go on holidays somewhere where I didn't think I could get a absolutely stunning meal. Locally, we've got a few great bakeries that have opened up in the southeast where I live in London. So often I'll get up and I'll go on a trip to Toad Bakery or to try to get to Eric's while they still have something <laughs> left. And then from there, you know, I've got to find a great coffee around Ooh. there. And yeah, I, I mean, I'm becoming a bit of an old man and I quite enjoy reading a book in the park and doing stuff like that and, and looking at other people's dogs and um, thinking, oh, that's a, that's a nice little dog, which I would have said was super boring a few years ago, no. but now I guess. Now you're old. <laughs> I now I'm super old. I, I go for that kind of boring stuff. Well, it sounds very relaxing. I like it. That's really good. Sue, do you have any interesting hobbies? Yeah, I think um, we, we don't have a lot of time, do we, around the music scene? And um, 
So I think family time is really precious. And I've got to that really old age where we've got two beautiful grandchildren now. And so they're, they're my more than my hobby, but they're very much part of life. But uh, halfway through pandemic, I, I had just qualified in something completely different. Not many people know. I've gone down a design track and uh, became qualified as an interior designer. And oh, that's wow. been a passion of mine for my whole life. I grew up in a household with parents were serial doer-uppers. And so I've been doing a bit of that around my music career. That's really fascinating. That's just helping people make their homes really lovely sanctuaries. It's really important. Home's oh. a really important place to be. Absolutely. But I think um, our grandchildren are, are where all our concentration lies when we're not working now. Oh, that that is beautiful. And yes, my parents are now grandparents as well, and they, oh, they would say the same fabulous, thing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is all-consuming, but absolutely magical. Yeah. Now, here on LPL stage, we have a feature called This or That. Quick fire question. You've got to give me one answer. Which would you choose? Symphony or opera? Sue. Symphony. I'll come back to you. Hugh. Uh, symphony. All right. So why? Oh, well, geez, that's a difficult question. I mean, it's nice to have a variety, but to be honest, I, I get a bit bored sitting in the pit in the dark, like I'm feeling like I'm becoming a mushroom sometimes. I, um, I quite like being on stage and seeing the audience and and often in the pit, I can't hear the singers. So, you know, you can feel quite isolated and it's very loud. So sometimes I put in earplugs if I'm sitting near loud instruments. And so sometimes it's um, it's a bit of factory work kind of doing your job on the supply chain as a bass player and uh, waiting for the thing to end to have your beer at the end. There you go. <laughs> and Sue, how about you for the symphonies? It's It's pretty similar. I think as a symphony orchestra, if we're on stage, I suppose we're the stars of the show. In the opera, we're buried in a pit. If I was playing opera all the time on stage with the singers around us, I'd love it. And I think mm. just in mm. the pit, as Hugh was saying, it's very hard for us to hear. So we can't always hear. We certainly can't see. I personally feel really detached from what's going on when we're playing opera, which is really sad because it's amazing music. It's not to say we don't like the music. Yeah. It's just the way that we are involved in its performance. So not really being able to hear, then you don't feel quite part of it. And yeah, I think if, if opera was on stage, I think it would be a very different experience all the time. It's much nicer. It's amazing, Sue, isn't it, when you're, you've been doing an opera at Glyndebourne, you know, you might have done 20 shows of it, and then you go and you do the prom of it, and so you're sitting on stage in a beautiful acoustic in Royal Albert Hall, and you can see and hear the singers. I mean, that just kind of the, the orchestra completely comes alive. Well, yeah, it feels that way to me. It's amazing. We're very often, it's, they, they, they like to put a slight dampener on us, whether it's volume or what have you. To, it's the acoustic at Glyndebourne is phenomenal, but not for us. For the audience, it's wonderful. <laughs> and we've just finished this run of Carmelites by Poulenc. And never in my 40 years in the biz have I ever had music that has stayed with me. We finished this. The prom was a week ago or whatever. And every even if we had four or five days between performances of that opera, there was something about the music that was in me every single day. It was quite menacing. It's an incredibly powerful, tragic story, unbelievable music. And it was in my head 
And it still is. I, even today, I can hear the sort of the menacing, those last two pages when it's all getting <laughs> gruesome. I mean, I've never had that experience. It's been extraordinary. A lot of people have said the same thing, that music has just sort of stayed with us. So we have to be careful when, which would you prefer, symphony or opera? Mm. The music is phenomenal and it's not that. It's just, I think, our experience of how we have to perform it, really. Taking us out of the orchestra a little bit, you spoke about hobbies and I'm, I'm intrigued. And uh, one of the benefits of being here on Zoom, doing it as a video call, is that I can uh, do a little bit more digging as we're talking. <laughs> and uh, Sue, Sue. Mm-hmm. You have uh, said that you are uh, qualified as an interior designer mm. and I'm on your website. It is absolutely fabulous. Congratulations, <laughs> uh, Sue Burling Interior Design. It, mm. uh, some of the projects are just beautiful. And so it leads me to ask this question. If you weren't a musician in the orchestra, what would you be doing? Is it I, this or would it be something no, else? No, it would be that. You never quite know where life's going to take you and pandemic hit and we were all sitting around not doing very much, except I really was. I was working very hard on somebody's Mm. house, which kept me sane. It is something that I'd probably morph into if I wasn't playing. The playing is, it needs 100% commitment. You can't dabble with what we do. You can't be a part-timer, even though I am a part-timer in terms of schedule, I have to be on it and you can't let that go. But if there's a big chunk of time when I'm not required by the orchestra, that might be something then that I would do. And I'd only take on work if, if I knew there was a big gap. Yeah. But it might be something that I, I'd say might. I think it probably will be something that I'll do when I find that I can't play anymore. Well, I do hope so. It's absolutely beautiful oh, I'm uh, glad you uh, designs and, and interiors. <laughs> well, we were just lucky. There's going to be some perks with not being <laughs> We together. bought a wreck. <laughs> We bought a wreck and uh, it was more of a wreck than anybody thought, including an architect that I work with. But it's, it's, you know, we've ended up with a really lovely home. We downsized, but it was a lot of work, but it's been worth it. Yes. And uh, I learned a lot. Absolutely. And uh, I just love that. It's another creative process in a different way. You know, people know what they like and they know what makes them feel comfy. And for me, it's a lot of instinct. I just want to make them have a happy place. It might just be one room, whatever it is, but I, I really enjoy it. Fantastic. Maybe you could um, redo the backstage of Festival Hall, Sue. <laughs> that needs a Get lot her of work. Get her on it. <laughs> that needs so much work. <clears throat> yes, no problem. <laughs> there you go. Oh, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. And Hugh, how about for you? What would you be doing if you weren't a musician? I really find, as silly as this might sound, um, economics and finance quite interesting. I think it's something that kind of binds the world together. It's what really dictates how economies and countries make decisions. And um, I found it quite interesting being a board member of the LPO and seeing that I think we've got the ratio correct with our management of what I would guess to be about 50% business and 50% art. I mean, I would love to work with the greatest conductors on earth every day of the week, but we can't afford to do that every day of the week. And there are economic realities that dictate what's artistically possible. Otherwise, we'd make so many different artistic choices if finance was unlimited. So I kind of see it living side by side with how people live their lives, just like I don't I don't do a job that is all about money. However, without enough money, it would be a pretty miserable life to not be able to live in, a, in an okay apartment, let's say. And so in a, a macro view of that, I think economics and the way that it kind of makes the world work and informs people's decision-making is quite interesting. 
I'd be quite interested in studying it, even if I don't take it up as a uh, as a profession ever. It's something I like to read about and I'm interested in. Fantastic. I just love how varied your lives are and also your, your passions and your interests. Thank you both so much for sharing with me today. I feel like I've got to know you even more so. And thank you to everybody that's emailed in their questions for Sue and Hugh. What fantastic people. Thank you both so much. Pleasure. Thanks, Yolanda. Thanks, Sue. I'll see you again in a few months, Sue, at um, September. Day trip season, to Ghent. I guess. September, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, see you again. It's beautiful. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Sue Burling and Hugh Kluger for such insightful moments into their lives, their hobbies and their passions. And we want to hear from you. Please email offstage at lpo.org.uk with any questions you have for the players or any of our guests here on LPO Offstage, whether it's about how to get into listening to classical music or best orchestral venues in Brighton. That's offstage at lpo.org. UK, or you can message us on social media at London Philharmonic Orchestra. I can't wait for the next episode of LPO Offstage. I'll see you then. <laughs>